few years ago, uh, Toddler Candy Challenge took social media by storm. If you don't know what that is, uh, it's basically mom and dad setting up a camera in, uh, at the dinner table, bringing their kid or kids to the dinner table and putting candy right in front of them and saying, hey, in a minute you can eat it, but I need you to wait. I got to go in the other room and work on a few things, and when I get back, you can eat the candy. This is one of my favorites here. We're going to play it. Watch out. Okay. Here's yours. Move your drinks. Look. This is going to be all yours. Don't eat them yet, okay? And Marley, this is yours, okay? Don't eat them all. I'm going to go find some gum, okay? I'll be back in like a few minutes, okay? So just sit there and don't eat them yet while I go get some gum, okay? I'll be right back. I'm not eating mine. And Amber must say, Oh, you can't get candy. Don't eat them all. If you eat them all, I'm going to tell Amber. Yeah, I promise. Let's lay those on the table for a little bit when when Amber gets back. Eat that one. Yeah, eat that one. Yeah, not all of it. No, not all of it. No. Say it. Hey, Matt. Did y'all eat any? Uh -uh. You didn't eat any. Um, Mar, he, uh, one of them. Did you? Well, I, 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 I ate no six. I ate four. Left to ourselves, right? Left to themselves. They couldn't handle it. She was shameless about it. Like, she didn't make two bones about it. She was honest in the end. She's just going to take it. Little man has a conscience, right? He's struggling with it. He's struggling with it. She's smiling at him. Come on, do it. Finally gives in. Then he's the one to lie, and she tells the truth. <laughs> Left to themselves, these toddlers take the bait, right? And maybe we think, well, what about us? Do we take the bait? Left to ourselves, we take the bait as well. Students, you got finals coming up. If your teacher walks out of the room... And you don't know the answer, are you going to ask your friend? Mom and dad, taxes are coming up. Maybe you're making up uh, reasons why you can evade taxes that weren't written in the tax code. Maybe fudge a little bit when nobody's looking. Maybe mom and dad, you think about your life before God when nobody's in the house and the pet sin kind of comes creeping into your mind. Left to ourselves, we're willing to take the bait like these toddlers often take the bait. Today, when we come to the end of Nehemiah, 
into Nehemiah, and Nehemiah goes out of town. The people of God have recommitted themselves to walk in God's way, to walk according to God's law. So left to themselves, how are the people of God going to do? Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, and we'll wrap up this book with a bang. Really, it's going to be more like a crash. More like a crash because, like these kids, they take the bait. They relapse into the very things that they've committed not too many years before to avoid. That for a thousand years, Israel, after given the law of Moses, continue to do, they continue to relapse in their commitment to walk in God's way, to walk according to his law. And if we're honest, as we look at the people of God in the Old Testament, as we've looked at the people of God and their failures through this book, if we're honest with ourselves, we relapse too. Nehemiah chapter 13, page 408 in your Bible if as you turn there, just to remind you in the book of Nehemiah, they've done some things. Like they've done some great things. They've come back from exile and they've rebuilt the wall physically. Even amongst opposition, they've done the work of God. They've even resettled in the city of Jerusalem. Even amidst opposition. And then the book of Nehemiah turns to their spiritual lives. And Nehemiah and Ezra call them back by the word of God to spiritual restoration, not just physical restoration anymore, but spiritual restoration. And they hear the word of God and they're convicted in their hearts about their sins that are before them. They confess with their mouths and they say that we're going to walk in God's ways. And they on paper commit themselves to walking in God's ways. And 12 years goes by. And we come here, Nehemiah heads out of town. He's got to go back to Persia. If you remember, he was still the cupbearer to the king. He was still under the authority of the Persian king. And he's got to go back and give a report. And when he comes back, he finds that the people of God, maybe like us, have relapsed. They've taken the bait. I want to show you what Nehemiah finds when he returns. I want to show you how Nehemiah responds. And then I want to show you the root problem of the human heart that can never be fixed by some of the things that we see in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 4 through 14. Let me read it for us. Got your Bibles? Ready to go? We've got a full chapter. Now before this... Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah by marriage, shouldn't have been, but was, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. This is in the temple where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and contributions for the priest. While this was taking place at the temple, I was in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. I was, in, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon or Persia, I went to the king. He had to report back. And after some time, I asked leave 
of the king and came back to Jerusalem. And then I discovered, kind of like the babysitter in the video, I discovered some things. I discovered, what does he call it? The evil that Eliab has done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the temple in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. He wasn't being a nice guy. I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleaned the chambers and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out, he's coming back into this, that the portions of the Levites, their food, their pay effectively, the operating budget of the temple for the Levites who were the teachers of the land had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to the field. They can't live off the temple. And why is that? So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Because Tobiah's in it. And I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe, which they had been withholding, the grain, the wine, the oil, and the storehouses. The storehouses were being occupied by the enemy of God, Tobiah. That's why they weren't bringing their grain. And then I set up and appointed treasurers over the storehouses. Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, notice it's not one, it's four, Zedadiah the Levite and their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachur, son of Mattiana. For they were considered reliable to their duty and was in distributing the, to their brothers. And then Nehemiah prays and he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Do you remember what the people of God recommitted to in the end of chapter 10? They recommitted themselves to bring the tithes, to bring their offerings. And in that day, it not only was their financial resources, it was also things like grain. And that was to go to the teachers of Israel, the Levites, so that they could take care of themselves. But what's happening here? is something different. And then they say in their commitment in chapter 10, and I think we have it here. In chapter 10, they say, we will not neglect the house of God. But what do they do? They neglect the house of God. C3, what we see in this text is left to themselves The people of God neglected the house of God for their own gain. And here's a truth for us left to ourselves. We can neglect giving to God's house for our own gain, just as the people of God did then. Understand the story. There's a priest that's over the storehouses. This is where the people would bring their tithes and bring their offerings and they cleared out these storerooms, and they put a guy in those storerooms, Tobiah. Tobiah, we find out later in this chapter, Tobiah is related to this priest. Should that even be happening? He's an Amorite. He shouldn't even be marrying. They shouldn't be marrying into each other's family. This tells you 
of the ministerial rot that had happened in the pastorate effectively. This high priest, this priest had made, made these sinful decisions and he lets Tobiah, I call him Tobiah the termite, because he lets him into the temple. That's a desecration of the temple. That's not just neglect of the temple. It's a desecration of God's temple to have a foreigner inside the temple, not any foreigner as well. This is the guy in chapter 1, when the people of God come rolling in to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall, him and this guy named Sanballat, that's a name for an enemy, they look at him and they say, he look at Nehemiah and they say, this is the guy who cares for the flourishing of Israel. And from that moment, they ridicule him. They try to oppose him. They threaten physical force all the way through the book. That's that guy. But he's got his claws in Israel through marriage. And so he's wormed his way as a termite all the way into the temple of God when Nehemiah takes a break. That's how far the moral degradation had gone in 12 years, effectively. Tobiah's hanging out in the storehouse, and the people of God who teach the people all around Israel don't have food, and they don't have money to take care of themselves. So they leave. They had to flee to their ancestral home. Basically, they lost their jobs because the priest wanted the gain that he could have out of having Tobiah in who was a status guy, who was the guy that had people under heavy debts so he could get in good with the world. Sound familiar? And so what does Nehemiah do? Look at what he does. Check it out here. Look back at it. It says he called it evil. He was very angry. And here's what he does. He takes Tobias' stuff, all of his stuff, and it looks like he not only has one storeroom, but multiple storerooms for all the things of the house of God. And he cleanses the temple. He takes all of his stuff and he takes Tobiah and he kicks him out of the temple. This is, you looking at this going, oh, Nehemiah, he's not very nice. The next time the temple of God gets cleansed, 430 years later is by who? It's Jesus your Savior, who comes into Jerusalem and he looks at the temple and he sees the money changers who are robbing God on the Sabbath. And he takes premeditatively a whip of cords and he comes in and he overturns the tables and he kicks them out. And he says, my father's house has become a house of robbers. Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. No, this is right and good for Nehemiah. Who should be doing this in this text? It should be the religious leaders in the temple that kicked Tobiah out. But a lay guy, Nehemiah's a lay guy. He's a layman in the Old Testament community. He's the governor. He has to come in as a layman because the clergy won't do their job. And he kicks them out of the temple. And then he brings back the offerings that the people had reneged on as well, they stopped giving because of this. And the Levites had to go out of town because of this. And he restores order to the temple as the lay guy. And he puts it back in place. 
if you're Nehemiah, aren't you tired by now? Right? All through this book, he's been dealing with the people of God, and he's been calling them back to the law of God. But that's the problem with the law of God, isn't it? It doesn't change the human heart. It tells us of our sin, but it doesn't change the human heart. So what the law fails to do means Nehemiah, when he leaves and comes back, he's still got to clean up the house over and over and over again. Let me ask you, parents, just for a minute, if you have like a couple of six-year-olds and you decide you and your wife need to get out of town for like six weeks, are you going to leave your children all to themselves for that long? They, a, they couldn't feed themselves, and B, especially if you have boys, like they're going to tear the place apart. They're going to tear your house apart. They're going to tear the neighborhood apart. You're not going to do that. If you have to leave, what are you going to do? You're going to get a babysitter. And that's the way the law of God is. It's like a babysitter. It's like what Nehemiah is having to do right here. He's got to clean the house again and again and again. That's a tough Tough job. See, the sin of the nation often starts with ministerial compromise like you see here. You can preach a sermon on that. But this isn't the first time this has happened, not even in the book of Nehemiah. They had stopped giving tithes and offerings. They had stopped doing this. They had stopped giving to God's house for their own gain before, and their ancestors did it before as well. You remember in the book of Nehemiah, we've talked about how the this is like the third wave of exiles that come out of Babylon, that the Persians are over now. This is the third wave. Well, the first wave, they brought people because of their sin. They went into exile. The people of God went into exile, and they went to Babylon. Well, the first wave comes with Zerubbabel, and they come back to live in Jerusalem, which is rubble, but they also come back for one specific task. What was it? Do you remember? to rebuild the temple of God. To rebuild the temple of God meant that they had to get wood from Lebanon, like they do in Nehemiah, to rebuild the wall. They had to get wood and bring it to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And you know what they do instead of getting to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple a generation before this? They take the wood from Lebanon and they build their own houses with that wood. Haggai. Anybody ever read Haggai in the Old Testament? What are you going to say to Haggai when he get to heaven and he says, how'd you like my book? You better read it. <laughs> the prophet Haggai is ministering in Jerusalem at that time. And you know what Haggai says to the people? He says, it's time to rebuild the temple. And they're like, no, nah, I don't think so. I like my Carlton Woods house. <laughs> Paneled houses. That's what he says. They're chilling, man. They've got what they need. And Haggai, the prophet, says to them, how can you dwell in your paneled houses while the house of God lays desolate? Consider your ways. You may be sitting in your Carlton Woods house, but notice something, Israel. Notice you plant crops and God doesn't bring rain. You got plenty of seed, but God doesn't bless it. You drink, but you're still thirsty. You eat, but you never have enough. 
you labor and you get money, but your holes, your pants have holes in them. It doesn't last. Left to ourselves, like the people of God, we neglect giving, to, when we neglect giving to God's house for our own gain, it doesn't work out. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way, and Haggai says it later. Here's the picture. What you're doing when you take care of your own house and you don't take care of God's house that you've committed to take care of, it's like pouring water in a broken cistern that holds no water. C3, the the danger for us today is what comfortable compromises are we financially making to rob God and pad our own pockets and our own houses? That's a question for me. That's a question for you. You see, in the New Testament, God does call us to give to his work through the local church. He calls us to cheerfully give. He calls us to give sacrificially. He calls us, whether there's inflation, crazy inflation, that I'm dealing with every time I pay bills or you, He calls us to give to his work. When you look at the pie chart of what you've given this year or what you've spent your money on this year, how much of that is to your local church? How much of that is to the work of God here? And I know maybe in the back of your mind you're saying, yeah, but I can barely make ends meet. Said it a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 10 and they were struggling with this. I'll say it again. He who sows sparingly, wheat, reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. And that's not a health wealth gospel. That's not God is a vending machine gospel. God blesses when we live by faith and trust him. Consider that as we end the year this year, as we look to next year. Maybe it's a goal for next year, or heck, we got two weeks left. A goal for this year to go, man, I'm gonna start giving of my first fruits rather than off the bottom of what I have left over. That's the problem then. That's often the problem in our hearts now. He not only finds neglect in giving to God's house for their own gain, You see another way in which they've relapsed effectively. You see them, rather than worshiping on Sunday and resting on Sunday, what are they doing? They're working or they're playing or they're enjoying the food that they're selling and borrowing. Look at it here in the text. So second thing, in those days, verse 15, I saw, because remember, he's coming back into town. I saw in Judah, left to themselves, the people treading the wine. They're making wine, the wine press, on the Sabbath, underline that, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrannus also lived in the city, brought in fish. This is fish. These are foreigners coming into the city on the Sabbath and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. What are they supposed to be doing on the Sabbath day in the Old Testament? They're supposed to be resting from their labor as God did when he 
created the world, they're also supposed to be gathering for worship, to worship God. So this Sabbath is about spiritual well-being. And what are they doing? They're working. They're laboring. In verse 17... How does he respond? I confronted the nobles. There's those nobles again. We've seen Tobiah, the nobles, their trouble of Judah, and said to them, what is this evil thing that you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not God bring them to disaster? And you're bringing it on our city. Now, are you bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath? Nehemiah goes right into it. He doesn't wait He's not impressed with the nobles because of their status or their money or their stronghold on the people's debt. As a leader, he goes right in. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark, that's the beginning of the day in Jewish calendar, which would be the beginning of the Sabbath, and at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut Meaning, outsiders can't get into Jerusalem. The people who are trading that are outsiders, that are foreigners, they can't get in. That they should be opened until the Sabbath is over. And I stationed some of the servants in the gates that no load might be brought back to the Sabbath day, that the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside them once or twice. Meaning, they shut the doors, but they were still there. They were waiting to get in. Look at what Nehemiah does, fellas. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I will lay hands on you. He ain't coming out to pray. He ain't putting his holy hands on them. Those are fisticuffs. He's not very nice. <laughs> From the time on, they did not come to the Sabbath, so it was effective. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come guard the gates. This is a lay guy telling the priest and the Levites to purify themselves. Sorry, it just makes me frustrated. I'm a pastor. This frustrates me to keep the Sabbath day holy. And here he is again, second time. Remember this also in my favor, O God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. He's going to do that right there one more time. Here's what I think is happening. Every time he come, brings the people back to reform and change, they don't like it. They don't like not working on the Sabbath. They don't like bringing their ties. And here's the man of God saying, they might not remember me. They might not like that I'm popular. I'm not popular to them. I don't care. You remember me, God. I'm doing what is right and what is good. So first, left to ourselves, we neglect giving to God's house. But second, left to ourselves, we can exchange our worship for our work. Can we not? This is what we see in this text. They're working on the Sabbath. They're making money on the Sabbath. They're buying and selling goods on the Sabbath. They should be resting. They should be worshiping their God but they've made their God their work in their pocket. But this does come back to finances, don't you think? I mean, the reason they're wanting to work on the Sabbath so they're going to be okay, so they can control their pocketbook, right? So they can make more money. That, that's functionally what's underneath this as well. What did they commit to do 12 years ago in chapter 10? Do you remember? Here's what it says. We will not... I've got to bring it into the light here. 
Verse 31. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day, the merchants, those people Nehemiah was kicking out, to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops on the seventh year. Are they doing it? No, they relapse. There's a relapse here. They go back to doing what they were doing when Nehemiah left the building. They go back to it, maybe like us. And so what does Nehemiah do? Do you see all the things he's trying to do here? He threatens them. He warns them. He confronts them. And then he takes action. I mean, he physically takes action. When the sun's going down on Friday and Sabbath is coming at dark 30 on Friday night, which starts in Israel Saturday, and the Sabbath starts when the sun goes down, he shut the gates of Jerusalem. He's trying to help the people of God who don't want to obey, obey. He's taking some serious action. He's shutting it down. Everything on the outside is shut off so that it forces them to obey the law of God. I've got teenagers. I've got a wonderful teenage daughter. So I'm not talking to you when I say what I'm about to say because I, would never, I wouldn't have to do this to my sweet daughter. But if I had a rebellious teenage daughter who had jumped out the window on Friday nights or Saturday nights to go do things with her friends, things she shouldn't be doing, you know what I would do as a dad? I would station my really bulky 16-year-old son at her door or her window, I don't know. And if the boys or friends were circling that, that I didn't like and they came to the door, I would threaten them, right? Stay away, leave my daughter alone. It's not you, babe, don't have to do that, praise the Lord. I got an alarm system too now, it's like the windows don't work that way anymore, so. But this is the kind of thing Nehemiah is having to do. He's having, seriously, he's having to treat the people of God like children. But that's the way the law is. It can't change the human heart. So he's resorting to these kinds of methods to, to try to keep the people of God from doing what they've been called to do by God. They make an oath, right? And it's interesting all the way through this text that the people, the Levites and the priests, the clergy, they're not leading as they should be. The layman Nehemiah is leading. He's teaching the people or reminding the people about the Sabbath. Where are the Levites? They're involved. He confronted them as well. They're not teaching the Word of God. They're not holding people to the standard. You ever heard of a preacher named Martin Lord Jones? Ever heard of him? Famous old preacher, faithful preacher. Did you know he didn't get into the ministry when he got to college? He didn't feel called to it. He was a doctor. He went and studied to be a doctor, and he was a doctor for a number of years. But he would go to church, and every place he tried to go to church, what he found was ministerial rot, that they wouldn't preach the gospel truth. The ministers wouldn't preach the gospel truth. They wouldn't preach the word of God. They wouldn't hold people 
to the Word of God, and he's like, you know what? I'm going to go study. I'm going to go study. I'm going to change careers. He went from being a doctor to a preacher. Different tax bracket. But he's a faithful preacher of God. I love it. I love it when lay people hold the line. The problem sometimes in ministry is that ministers think they have a platform, and so they look at the world and say, how can I have more lights? How can we have more lights? How can we? And the way to do that is to yield, to yield to the culture. Nehemiah doesn't do that. It's not popular, but he doesn't do that. We need people in our churches to stand in the gap. We need pastors to do it too. But we need people in our churches to stand in those gaps. Let me ask you a question. And this is just getting up in your stuff a little bit. How much time on a Sunday morning? See, the New Testament calls us to gather together. Calls us not to forsake our assembly together, which is habit for some, but all the more till Christ. Do you believe that you need Sunday morning? Or do you think a podcast is enough? See, for your discipleship, God sees it as central that you come together on a Sunday morning and worship together as the body of Christ to learn from the Word. And I'm not the guy, okay? I'm not the guy that's taking role That's not me, that's not us, but I want this for you and your family to commit to being here on Sunday morning. Sometimes we make that optional and maybe it's not work, maybe it's play, maybe we work so much that we wanna play on Sunday morning. Maybe it's because we believe that our kids or like the second coming of Reggie Jackson or Phil Mickelson or whoever sports figure at like 8 to 12, and we think the only way that they can get to the next level is play all these sports and get them out of church on Sunday morning. And I'm telling you, as somebody who loves sports and played it at the next level, you're like 5 to 15-year-old, it ain't going to make a difference. If they're that good, they're going to get there there. And what we do in our family when we say, when we demonstrate as mom and dad, and I'm preaching now, but when we demonstrate with mom and dad that Sunday morning it is negotiable, we're communicating values to our children. So think about that. Do you value worship over your work or over play? Listen, One more thing. Left to ourselves, we're all capable of this. We are just like Old Testament Israel relapsing from where we've come from. Left to ourselves, we relapse with our work, we relapse with our finances, and last, he's just going to go into it. Left to ourselves, last, we can compromise holiness to the moral decay of our home. That's where he goes. The biggest problem in Israel for a thousand years has been the intermarriage of foreign wives. You see it wreck Solomon. You see it wreck Israel. And here's what it's not. It's not a racial issue. Oh, you don't want a Jew to marry uh, an Amorite? It's not a racial issue. Here's what it is. It is a spiritual issue that the person who follows Yahweh, should not marry a person who follows Molech in the Old Testament. 
The New Testament says you ought to be equally yoked with the person that you marry, young people, single people. There's an equal yoking, and what happens is in a marriage it's not equally yoked. When one's a believer and one's not effectively, who wins out? Is it the believer or the unbeliever in the direction of the home? Here's what happens in this text. Look at this. In those days, I saw the Jews. He's coming back. He's seeing it again. I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. That's Philistine women. Ammon and Moab and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They didn't even speak Hebrew anymore, which means they couldn't read the Word of God. They couldn't hear and understand the Word of God anymore, which the parents are supposed to be putting in front of the children, but it's the parents. Note this, these are arranged marriages. These aren't the kids making decisions. These are the parents making the decision to farm out their kids to people who don't believe the truth of God. It's a parent problem right here. Why? For status and for money. That's why they did it. Talk about selling your kids to sin. This is what happens. But only the language of each people. So they couldn't even speak Hebrew anymore. They couldn't even recognize the name of God anymore. And I confronted them and cursed them. Curse just means that God's going to deal with you. That's what it means and beat some of them. Nehemiah not being nice. I beat some of them. These are men and pulled their hair. It's probably not here. It's probably their beards. It's probably the dude Nehemiah grabbing a dude's beard and shaking it. What are you doing to your family? How would you like it if I greeted you? If you got beards today, pull in your beard. How would that? We live in a different world, right? But he's willing to go there because it's idolatry. And it has deep and abiding decay written all over it for their families, for the next generation. I'm supposed to just read this and then explain it, and I'm not doing it. And I made them an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall give your daughters to your sons or take their daughters for your sons for yourself. Did not Solomon, check this out. So not only has he confronted them physically even, he's going to preach to them a little bit. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, look at this, sin on account of such women. Among many nations, there was no king like him. He's a great king. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. By the way, Solomon's the guy that had more wisdom than anyone too. And yet, nevertheless, look at it. Foreign women made even him sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all the great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, are we better than Solomon? Are you better than Solomon? Do you have some king's ex that makes you immune to the effects of marrying foreign women and giving your sons foreign women? who will in turn worship other gods and bring your sons to worship other gods? I know we're, we're, you're just immune, right? He's saying you're not immune. He's calling people to holiness. And then, check this out. And one of the sons of Jehoda, the son of Eliashab, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, 
So this high priest, where all this started in the temple, he's married into the family of Tobiah, an Amorite, his family, and Sanballat, the other enemy of God. That's how far they're gone. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, oh my God. Not remember me, remember them. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood. And thus I cleaned from every one of them the foreign people. And I established the duties of the priest and the Levites each to the work. And I provided for the wood offering. Who's supposed to be providing for the wood offering? Levites, priests. He's doing it. Nehemiah. At the appointed time. And for the first fruits. Remember me, O God. For good. See, left to ourselves, we can also compromise holiness to the moral decay of our home. And here's the truth about sin. Sin starts small and it grows. And maybe you think your sin is not going to affect other people around you. Who does it affect in this text? It affects kids. It affects their own children. We started with the high priest and we worked all the way down to the effect of sin to the children. Sin grows. So I want you to think about this. What effectively Nehemiah is doing with bringing up the the example of Solomon is he's saying, do you think God has changed his moral standard? Does God change his moral standard in a hundred years? In our world, let me ask you, do you think God changes his moral standards that he set out in his word for you and for me? The world thinks, seems to think so. Churches often seem to think so, right? The Lord doesn't change his moral standards. He wants our good, but our good is tied, right? Our flourishing is tied to us following his ways and his design, not ours. Parents, there's a message here for us, Right? We cannot compromise God's standards of holiness in our own lives. And I'm not just talking about family worship and what you say to your kids. I'm talking about what your kids see in you. And I know as well as you and my kids can, could get up here and talk about me as your kids could talk about you and how you fall and you fail. That's not what I'm talking about. What's the direction of your home? What do your actions look like in your home? Compromising God's standards of holiness in your home will affect your children, which is the least thing that we want, right? I mean, why do you think it is that marketers target your children? I mean, I look around and look at companies all around and go, man, you're going to lose all your money because you're doing this, because you're taking this LGBTQ agenda and putting it at the front of your store, Target. Why? See, they have a long view in mind. Big corporations, social media. You know who they're targeting? They're not targeting us, sorry. They're targeting our children because they know they're playing the long game. They're hoping that the ideology, the secular ideology of our culture continues and they've got the children. If they've got the children, they continue. They make more money. You catch that? So it matters. Sorry, kids, y'all just lost all your phones. You just lost all your social media. But understand the importance of putting biblical values in front of your kids 
for your kids, mom and dad, not perfectly, for your kids to see you walking with the Lord. And when you don't, that you're willing to say, forgive me. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not the way I was called to walk. Well, this kind of ends Nehemiah on a downer, doesn't it? Right? I don't know if you knew this, but the book of Nehemiah is the historical end to the Old Testament. See, when, when you look at your Bible and my Bible, it's arranged in the Old Testament thematically, right? So you got the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, gives us a foundation, and then you get um, the historical books like the one we're in in Nehemiah. So you get the history and the chronology of Israel, but it's kind of hard to know where you're at, right? And then after that, you get the writings like Proverbs and um, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Job, but then you get the prophets at the end. And so when we read the Bible, we're trying to make sense of where we're at. Nehemiah is the last of the historical history of the Old Testament. This passage is the downer end of the Old Testament. You know, the prophet Malachi, which is the last book in, in your Bible, the prophets, he's kind of angry at the people. He's talking to them about all the things that we just talked about today. They're contemporaries. Here's the message. It's the message from the time Moses gets the tablets from the mountain all the way to here. God's law is good. You need to know that. God's law is not bad. It's good. What does it do? What's the purpose of the law that Nehemiah is trying to call the people to? The purpose of the law is to show the holiness of God. But it's also, in doing that, it shows us our need. It shows us our need for something greater because the law cannot change human hearts. It can reveal sin. It can show us our need, and we all need to know our need, right? But it ought to leave us going, banging our heads like the people of Israel, relapsing over and over and over for a thousand years to cry out to God, we need something else. We need you to act. Left to ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. All we can do is relapse. Let me finish with a story. A few weeks ago, we were at Under Over sharing the gospel with people and Under Over ministers to, to people that are really in difficult places, particularly men on the street coming out of deep struggles. So we're sitting, we went to share the gospel and deliver food. And I just so happened sat next to one of the guys, and he had just come in to under over. They call him Little Larry. I sat down next to him, and I started asking him questions. And the first thing he said to me was, this is the first day I've been sober in 12 years. I'm like, man, I want to know more. And you could tell. Shaking. Stuttering. I said, Larry, tell me, tell me about why you came. Tell me, about, tell me about your life. He's like, well, got in the wrong crowd in high school, started doing drugs, hadn't stopped. 12 years. Lost everything. Lost my family. My dad handed me a business. I squandered it. All of it. Got no money left. 
And we're driving in Conroe as he's talking. And he said, you see those woods out there? That's where I've been living. There ain't no, there's, there's no homes out. He's just been living in, in, the, in the trees. I've relapsed, I don't know how many times. Life is in shambles, so I just thought I had enough. Like, well, 12 years. And I came to under over last night. Pretty much thought I would die. Came last night. They took me in. And I'm going to turn this thing around. I want to turn this thing around. I want to change. And he starts telling me about what that's going to look like. He goes, I said, do you, Larry, what do you, I, you know there's a church, and well, what do you know about God? And he goes, well, I'm pretty sure I've broken every law of God because I've broken every law in Montgomery County probably. <laughs> and I said, do you think just trying harder is going to help you? Or do you think you need more than that? I said, let me tell you a story. Do you know the biblical story of the prodigal son, Larry? He goes, I don't know anything about the Bible. No. Love it. Sad, but love it. So let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about a father who loved his son. His son rebelled, ran away, squandered everything. He's like, I did that. I like this story. That's me. Squandered everything. Hung out with the dogs. He's eating pig slop. And then he had a thought. Maybe my dad would take me back. Maybe I'll just go and be a hired hand. I can't be a son anymore. And I'll go back to my dad. And he starts crying. He's like, I've squandered everything. My dad wouldn't take me back. My dad's dead, but he wouldn't take me back. I said, but, but Larry, this is a spiritual story about your heavenly father and what he thinks about you. So listen. I said, the son starts coming back to his home knowing all that he had done and all the ways that he had relapsed. And he starts coming back. And the father sees him. And Larry goes at that moment, oh, he's going to be in trouble now. His dad's not going to take him back. He can, maybe he can, he can do something for him to earn his way. I'm like, he's filling in the gaps, man. I said, no, 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 Larry. That's not how it went. The son comes. He confesses to his father. His father embraces him puts on the family robe, signet ring, and he says, my father, my son was dead, and now he's alive. And he goes, that's too good to be true. He's got to work that off. That's what Larry said. He said, no, that's exactly the way God thinks about it, that you can come back. You can confess and come back to him and be made new. I look around this room. And I don't, I don't see people that look like Larry at all. I'm grateful. I look around this room and see people that have got some things together more so than him. I don't know your story, all your story. But I do need to tell you this. If you think that the law, obeying the law, can get you closer to God or Make you not a relapser. You're just as lost as Larry. You're just, you're just as bad off as Larry. 
And you got no way, no way of making it right on your own. Because left to ourselves, the law of God is meant to reveal sin. It's meant to show us God's holiness, to show us our need, but it can't save. It can't change your heart. The takeaway this morning is this. The only hope for relapsers like us is the rescue of a redeemer. Amen? The only hope. I don't care if you look like Larry or you got it all together. The only hope for us is a rescuer who redeems us from relapse. God's word says it this way in Romans 8.3, for God has done what the law could not do. How? God did something. What did he do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's Christmas. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's Easter. God's grace through his son Jesus rescues you from your sin. The law can never do that. Pulling up your bootstraps can never do that. Being better can never do that, C3. Only a redeemer, only a sovereign God who sends his son into a broken world can do that. Matthew 21, 21 says this, the angel says this to Joseph, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You know what the people of Israel were looking for? Hope, peace, joy that only Christ, the light of the world, could bring into their darkness. So listen to me. This week, as you prepare for Christmas, as you get ready for it, you get all these Amazon boxes showing up and you're wrapping gifts and you're figuring out your schedule, understand the glory of Christmas and Easter is that the law can never save you. Only a baby born in the manger who is Christ the Lord. The good news is so good because the very bad news is so bad. Let me pray.